Good afternoon, everyone, or good morning to those not on the East Coast. Thank you for tuning in. My name is Jeff Singer. I'm a practicing surgeon, and I'm also a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. The COVID-19 virus is now a, a part of the ecosystem. Open-ended lockdowns are socially and economically unsustainable. Americans will not be able to stay in isolation indefinitely. They will have to adjust to a new normal. That means coexisting with the virus. For decades, public health experts have recognized a strategy called harm reduction to address problems that, that range from HIV and other sexually transmitted diseases to the use of alcohol and other licit and illicit drugs. Harm reduction strategies begin with the realistic and non-judgmental premise that an abstinence-only approach will not work when it comes to risky sexual or substance use behaviors. Akin to the credo of my medical profession, first do no harm, Harm reduction is focused on avoiding measures that exacerbate the harms that result from unsafe behavior and focus strictly on the goal of reducing the spread of disease and death. The advent of the COVID-19 pandemic provides a new context in which to exercise the harm reduction strategy. A sustainable COVID-19 pandemic strategy must find ways to contain the virus while still allowing Americans not only to earn a living, but to live their lives. When abstinence only won't work, public health experts look for ways to minimize risky behavior. Harm reduction has saved lives from HIV and drug overdoses. It can sustainably protect Americans from COVID-19. So what does harm reduction for pandemics look like? We're very fortunate to have two experts today on harm reduction and public health who will try to answer this question and take questions from the audience. We're joined today by Maya Salovitz, an award-winning neuroscience journalist and author of Unbroken Brain, A Revolutionary New Way of Understanding Addiction. Maya has a personal appreciation for the harm reduction approach, having overcome heroin and cocaine addiction herself. We're also joined by Dr. Lena Wen, an emergency physician and public health professor at George Washington University. She's a contributing columnist for the Washington Post and previously served as Baltimore's health commissioner. After we hear from both of our speakers, I'll moderate a discussion with questions and answers. Please feel free to enter your questions on our event page or via Facebook or Twitter or YouTube and use the hashtag CatoCovid, which you should see in the lower left-hand corner of this screen. Maya, you're writing a book about the history of harm reduction, so let's start with you. Many viewers might not be too familiar with the harm reduction uh, approach, so please give us an overview of that approach. What is harm reduction? So harm reduction is the idea in drug policy that the goal of the policy should be to reduce harm, not to stop people getting high. And it can be applied to other areas, obviously, but the main idea is that any policy's effect should be measured by, does it reduce or increase harm? And obviously increasing harm is not what you wanna do. Now, this is a pretty ancient idea, going back to, you know, you use a shield in a battle, or um, you um, have a helmet, or you have the designated driver for drunk driving, or you have many other um, uh, types of ways of protecting yourself while engaging in a behavior that may be dangerous. So anything that reduces your risk, such as a seatbelt in a car, can be seen as harm reduction. Now this idea does not develop in drug policy until the 80s during the AIDS epidemic. And what happens there is we're at the peak of the drug war 
everybody is like, drugs are the worst thing ever. We don't care if people who use drugs die. It should just be drugs are bad. Let's stamp them out. Then, of course, AIDS comes along and it is a pandemic and it is transmissible to other people. It can be transmitted to babies during birth or in utero. Um, and suddenly there's this big risk out there and it is carried, um, especially via the blood. So IV drug use is incredibly risky. Um, in the UK, they saw this thing coming and they said, wait a minute. AIDS is a more serious threat to public health than drug use is, so we should act accordingly. So they start doing needle exchange and um, expanding treatments like methadone and basically prioritizing, reducing the harm, keeping people alive, recognizing that dead people do not recover. So that's a very brief history of, of where the idea of harm reduction comes from. Um, the first needle exchange was in uh, Rotterdam in the Netherlands um, and then Liverpool in the UK. Um, New York had the worst AIDS epidemic in IV drug users in the world. And yet we were incredibly resistant to the idea of doing needle exchange and doing harm reduction. Um, but eventually uh, through activism and a lot of other hard work, uh, it became uh, policy here. And what's interesting is in the UK, Liverpool did needle exchange before HIV hit the city. And they never had an epidemic in IV drug users. It was less than 1% prevalence in IV drug users. Whereas in New York, before the virus was even discovered, it was up to 50 to 60%. So since we've done needle exchange, however, it's now around 3%. And because of that, we stopped the epidemic that was occurring among infants and reduced heterosexual spread as well. So it has been an enormously successful policy, so much so that New York State calls it the gold standard for HIV prevention. Um, it incidentally turns out to be easier to get somebody who injects drugs to use a clean needle than it is to get a man to use a condom. Um, so that probably helps. But the idea before harm reduction was that People who use drugs are completely chaotic. They have no control over anything they do and they won't bother to protect themselves. Either that or they're so enamored of sharing needles that they would not bother to use a clean one because they like sharing, which is kind of gross if you think about it. But anyway, the reality is of course, people share needles because they're scarce. And when you looked at the epidemiology of where uh, the HIV epidemic was worse in the United States, it was where needles were harder to get. And all of the places that had tough needle laws had the worst epidemics, basically. So that was why New York was especially bad. Anyway, so the idea became, in order to stop this epidemic, we need to meet people where they are. We need to reduce harm. We need to stop focusing on whether this person is using or not using, but whether we can make them as healthy as possible, because if they die, they will not be able to get better. And so from that comes a whole range of ideas that can be expanded outside of drug policy. And it involves weighing risk in context. So you have to say, what is the most serious risk? And that's where you have to act first. And that is especially applicable to COVID because if you are constantly trying to be perfect, and you know, living as though you are uh, in a uh, hazmat suit, you will eventually mess up. 
and you may mess up at the highest risk time. So instead of having this thing where you're abstinent 100% and you are just avoiding this behavior completely, you have to weigh relative risks. And, and this is what we've learned in drugs because when people have an abstinence only model, if they break that abstinence, it does become chaotic because they think, well, I've already messed up, may as well go for it. And they think that now that I've messed up, I'm powerless over it, so I'm not gonna be able to stop anyway. And it becomes sort of binge behavior. So that is the most dangerous form of drug use. And it's most dangerous when you have people who are abstaining from sex and then suddenly go on a binge because they can't do that anymore. So what you wanna do is figure out ways to reduce harm when risk is highest and to recognize the relative risks. Um, oh, anything oh, else? Okay. Uh, uh, I'll, uh, that's, that's a great introduction. I appreciate that. I, I, I see a common thread uh, to all applications of harm reduction, like we talked about, which is realism. So, uh, you know, if uh, advocates of harm reduction don't seek to encourage or even endorse risky behavior, they simply accept the reality that we'll never have a world in which people don't engage in risk behavior, and they seek to mitigate uh, harms from that. Uh, but Lena, uh, you draw a distinction between voluntary and mandatory harm reduction, and you think that in the case of pandemics, uh, harm reduction isn't optional. So uh, would you please uh, elaborate on that and just give us your thoughts about harm reduction in the, in the uh, context of a pandemic. I will, and um, thank you very much, um, Jeff, for, um, for hosting today. And I'm glad to be, um, to be joining Maya um, in this discussion as well. Um, you know, I agree, of course, with what Maya had said about the use of this concept um, of harm reduction when it applies to COVID-19. Um, because we are living in a world where we cannot eliminate risk just by virtue of anyone going outside to do anything. There is going to be risk when we're interacting with other people. This is a virus that's highly transmissible from person to person. And so there is a risk of contracting it if you're going to be interacting with anyone. But we cannot, if we cannot eliminate that risk, at least we should reduce it. I think Jeff, what Jeff is referring to is I had written about uh, in other aspects of harm reduction, we're talking about individuals' choices to engage in riskier behavior. In this case, because in many in many states, reopening is occurring before the states have met the public health criteria for doing so. In essence, we are switching to a harm reduction strategy against our will. As in, many people may not feel like they're safe to go back to work, but they do have to go back to work, and so. The same principle still applies that you can reduce the risk of a risky behavior. However, in this case, for many people, that type of harm reduction strategy was not one that they would have necessarily chosen. And I think that distinction is important to bring out here. That said, I think there are four concepts in risk reduction and harm reduction, if you will, that I want to bring to the table. One is the idea that you can reduce risk by modifying one of three variables when it comes to COVID-19. And these three variables are proximity, activity, and, and time. That the proximity, meaning if you're able to physically separate from someone, keep that six foot distance, that matters. Activity, the type of activity matters. We know that speaking loudly, singing, expels droplets. 
droplets, also obviously share and drink, um, hugging, shaking hands, all these things are activities that involve close interpersonal contact and therefore spreads um, could spread the, the, the disease too. And then time also, that time of exposure matters as well. If you're running and you pass someone who has COVID-19, chances are you're not going to contract COVID-19 from a chance encounter. But if you are in the same room as someone, sitting next to them in a crowded space for hours, then your, your risk is going to be higher. So what does that look like when applied to thinking about everyday life? Well, let's say that you want to get together with your friends. The safest way to do so is in an outdoor space, let's say a backyard where you place the chairs at least six feet apart, where you watch the kids to make sure they don't violate social distancing. You do, everybody brings their own drinks. You do not share drinks or food and don't shake hands or hug in greeting. Um, when you go to a restaurant, takeout obviously is going to be safer. If you have to sit down somewhere, sit outside, spaced apart, um, and don't have your three-course meal, have a quick 30-minute meal and leave. That's much safer than an indoor crowded dining space where you're staying for hours. So that, I think, risk reduction concept is important. Um, three more quickly is, um, second is pooled risk, that there are often grandparents for example, who've been on, it's safe for me to see my grandchildren. Well, it depends. If both families have actually been keeping pretty safe and are not um, essential workers, as an example, it probably is safe for the two families to see one another. But recognizing that the more you bring into that circle, the more risk you're going to have. Third concept of cumulative risk. I think there is some misunderstanding about reopening. Reopening does not mean that everything is safe. Reopening does also does not mean that you have to do everything just because it's there. So if you're going to get your hair cut, you don't also have to go get a perm and stay in the salon for a long time. You also don't have to go to a restaurant. You also don't have to have play dates. So if you have to go to work, think about that as the risk that you're taking and then try to reduce the other risks that you may be exposed to as well. The fourth concept is that of individual versus collective risk. And I think the concept that I'll illustrate here is about masks, um, that wearing masks is something that could reduce our individual risk, but importantly, reduces the collective risk for everybody else around us too. Studies are showing that if all of us wear masks, that we reduce the collective risk overall by somewhere between 50 to 90% of, um, of, of coronavirus transmission. And so I think that these are the types of concepts I want to bring to the table for us thinking about Organizing that social distancing is a privilege, that not everybody has the privilege of modifying our risk factors. But for those who do, these are things that we can each do as we recognize that this in a time of pandemic is one that we are in it together. You know, uh, as as a physician, the whole notion of harm reduction actually is is sort of comes naturally. It's a no brainer because when you think about it, at least in modern times and in, in affluent developed societies, most of what doctors do is practice harm reduction. Uh, you know, when you have when you have people whose lifestyle choices make uh, make for them having unhealthy situations like, you know, they have high cholesterol, high blood pressure, diabetes, and a lot of these things could actually be completely managed without any need for any medications if the people would choose to change their lifestyle habits. But many people either they, they, they feel unable to or they don't want to. And so when we prescribe medications for blood pressure or cholesterol or diabetes, it, we're practicing harm reduction. We're accepting the fact that we're not going to get them to abstain from some of these risky behaviors. Uh, and we're trying to, our, our goal is even regardless of what we think about their choice, our goal is to, is to 
you know, mitigate the harm. But the interesting, an interesting difference between applying the harm reduction uh, approach to pandemics as opposed to the other ways in which people think of harm reduction is that a lot of uh, people who resist harm reduction tend to look at it as a form of enabling people. So opponents, when it comes to drug use or uh, unsafe sex, uh, opponents say, well, by, by giving out clean needles, for example, or condoms, you're just enabling these people. You're encouraging them and they're not going to learn their lesson. Um, to me, I'm thinking, well, you couldn't really use that argument when it comes to pandemics, can you? I mean, are you, are you going to tell somebody uh, that by giving them advice on how to, to get back into the world in a safe way, you're just enabling them? Uh, Maya, you want to say something about that? Sure. I mean, I think I think there's two points here. One is that the research shows that the enabling concept is completely ridiculous. And that if you give people clean needles, even if you give people free heroin, they actually don't use longer or stay longer in active addiction than if you just let them be. In fact, they're just more likely to live and more likely to be healthy. So the idea that we can make addiction worse by enabling it is just false. Uh, people who are going to be addicted are going to continue to use um, as long as they feel that that's in their best interest. And I think what Leanna was saying about the way COVID harm reduction has been forced on us, in general, harm reduction is opposed to force. Coercion and tough love and all of this stuff about we're going to use consequences to change your behavior is really the opposite of harm reduction because in addiction specifically, addiction is compulsive behavior that occurs despite negative consequences. So negative consequences aren't going to fix it. Um, when we're talking about COVID and we're talking about what risks people are going to take, we also need to take into account that people have different values. So for one person, their value may be that health is the most important thing to me. I'm going to stay in my house. I'm not going to take any risks. I'm just going to like completely do everything possible to mitigate this risk. And somebody else may be completely lonely, completely despairing, really needs human contact and thinks, okay, I'm going to take some more risk. We have to realize that people's values about risk are going to be different and are going to be different in different circumstances, which is why some people will actually, you know, use drugs like heroin that are very risky because in some situations that seems like the best thing to do. So understanding that people are coming from different places about the risks they take helps us to understand what risks are going to be taken and to mitigate the harm associated with that. Uh, you, Lena, anything you want to add to that? I mean, um, you know, when I was the health commissioner in Baltimore, I ran our needle exchange program and also started um, the pr uh, program for getting naloxone, the opioid antidote, also called Narcan, into everyone's hands to prevent people from dying from opioid overdose. I mean, I appreciated what Maya said in this regard, and she and I have actually been on a panel together um, where we talked about this concept that if you are dead today, there's no chance for a better tomorrow that that is what harm reduction does. It enables you to have the chance for recovery and treatment and to, um, and to getting back onto, onto, the, on, onto the path to, to, to recovery later. Um, I think that when it applies to a pandemic, again, it is different because 
one could argue, and you know, I'm not trying to get into the addiction kind of space here about why addiction happens, but rather in this case with risk, this is the risk that we all will have. I mean, there is no sense of the, it's hard to talk about personal responsibility in the sense, right? Because we all are in this position where we have to go back to work, where the economy has to get started. We have to send our kids to school, et cetera. So I think the concept is a little bit different Although I could certainly see it applying for, for example, I think we need to address the fact that there are protests that are going on all across our country. And I've certainly had people say to me, you know, why are these protesters doing this in the middle of a pandemic? Well, I think part of this is recognizing that the protests are occurring in part because of the pandemic, that COVID-19 unmasked many underlying racial disparities that have long been there. And the fact that people's lives are not valued equally is seen in COVID-19 and is reflected um, in, um, in the racial disparities that we see and, of course, is reflected in the impetus behind the protests in the first place. Um, but I think, you know, it's there are some people who say, well, doing protesting is a choice that people will, will make. Well, many people may feel like it's something it's a moral obligation, regardless of what that reason is. There are still steps that can be taken in order to mitigate that risk, because reducing the risk for one person also reduces the risk for everybody else, too. Uh, I, I have a question uh, from Anonymous. Say, it's a good question. Harm reduction should have an aspect of age. Yes, kids and play, preteens, teens, and socialization is critical for emotional uh, and mental development. Social distancing for adults compared to children and teens seems to have greatly different long-term effects. So keeping that in mind, how do you think, uh, uh, well, what, Alina, you want to start that one first and then I'll ask what Maya has to say? Oh, okay. You can go first, Maya. <laughs> go ahead. Um, well, I just want to say that developmentally touch and affection and socializing is critical. Um, actually, babies can die if they don't get held enough. Um, if they don't get enough nurturing, warm, physical affection from people. So it's certainly true that socially, developmentally, kids need more social contact than adults. But this is not to say that adults don't need social contact. Um, fundamentally, one of the worst things you can do to a human being is to put them into solitary confinement because that creates enormous stress. The way our stress systems are wired is that we comfort each other. Um, you can see this at every age and people desperately do need some form of social contact. So in the question of harm reduction, it's like, how do we weigh these risks? And I do think age should matter because it certainly is the case that kids are going to be missing out on important developmental experiences if they don't get enough socialization. Lena, you got anything I mean, you want to say I, to that? I guess I see this. Yeah, I think it's to me, it's less a concept of harm reduction as is weighing the pros and cons, right? Weighing the risks and benefits. Um, I see it as harm reduction is if you made a decision to do a certain thing, then how can you make that thing safer? And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm a mom. Um, I've got two young kids. I have a preschooler. Um, and a um, nine-week-old, actually two-month-old, who we just went to the, the doctor's office to get her shots. And I think that's, um, you know, it, it, I, I thought a lot when I was giving birth, actually, about what would have happened if 
I were diagnosed with COVID-19 and I might not be able to be to be touching my baby for weeks after birth. I think for, I mean, using that as, as an example, if that were to have happened, then there would be a risk benefit analysis, as Maya said, about the benefits of touching the baby, holding the baby of breastfeeding versus the risk also of, of, um, of, of giving COVID-19 to the baby through that kind of touch. And so I think that's weighing risks and benefits versus harm reduction would be if a decision were made that I would still breastfeed the baby and feed the baby and I had COVID-19, then how would we make that safer? So for example, I would wear a mask every time um, I'm even in close contact with a baby. I would wash my hands diligently before and after. Um, I would, I might not be able to breastfeed her directly, but that is one way of still giving her the breast milk. I mean, this might be too specific of an example, but I think that, I mean, I very much take the point that kids need that type of socialization and touch. And I think it's it behooves all of us to look at different ways of providing that in lieu of the physical contact. But if we are to choose that physical contact, then we move to harm reduction. And then we have to think about maybe as an example, um, we don't have play dates with 10 families. Maybe we choose two families that and all of us make a pact, if you will. I've heard of this being referred to as a bubble where the families involved in this bubble all decide to engage in relatively lower risk behaviors in other aspects of their lives um, and their kids can still play together. So I think there are ways that we can work around this, um, recognizing that everything is going to have risk, but can we make that risk as low as possible? Well, you know, if I may differ slightly on this, um, I think the risk and benefits uh, issue factors in regardless of what particular uh, situation we're dealing with, whether it's uh, substance use or pandemics. So I'm just thinking of myself. Um, I'm overweight and I have high blood pressure and uh, I could go on a diet, but I really, I decided that I love to eat and uh, I, I love to engage in, in, in some of the, uh, basically eat certain kind of foods that, that are not helping my high blood pressure and not helping me to get, get weight off. But I decided that the risk benefit equation favored me con continuing to eat uh, and not make dramatic changes in my diet. And so the, the uh, hypertension medicine I'm taking is a harm reduction measure. So I don't think there's necessarily a, dis uh, they're necessarily dis distinct. I think people, whatever behavior people choose to engage in should have involved, at least on their part, a risk benefit, uh, you know, uh, decision. And, and then um, the, the harm reduction uh, comes in to mitigate whatever uh, risk uh, they've decided to take on. That's the way I look at it. Uh, well, I don't and know a lot of it would be different. And, and this, this is why I think the, the values part is, is important because from a health department's perspective, everybody's value, everybody's first value should always be health. And what you're doing is wrong and bad, and you should be on your diet and et cetera. Um, I am taking an overly um, uh, pessimistic view of the health department, I recognize. But the idea is that some people value health higher than other people do. And at different times in life, you may make different decisions over which harms are greater to you. 
And we as a society are very judgmental about people choosing pleasure over health. And it's just important to sort of recognize that because sometimes we look at people who are engaging in risky behavior as being completely irrational, not realizing that they have chosen that risk because they are a risk taker, for example, or because you know mountain climbing is just the best thing they can do. So we need to recognize that these values are gonna vary and allow people to do harm reduction within the choices that they make rather than judging them. Um, I have a question from Dr. Josh Bloom. This Now we're getting a little more technical. Uh, this is for Dr. Wen. Early on, there was speculation that foodborne transmission of the virus was a risk because virus was found in feces, which would make fecal oral infection possible. This is no longer mentioned. Is it safe to say that foodborne illness is not a real risk? Yeah, I mean, um, the most recent um, compilation of information that I've seen about this and the guidance from the CDC and the World Health Organization is that COVID-19 is a respiratory illness transmitted through respiratory droplets. It is not transmitted through food um, and is not um, a foodborne illness. And so for things like produce, we should still be washing our produce just because we should be doing that anyway. Um, but otherwise, for other types of food, um, we don't need to be taking additional pre precautions as it's not a foodborne illness. Okay, this is an interesting question I received from Anonymous. Is there some harm reduction value in herd immunity? Uh, Lena, you want to take that one first? And then if, Maya, if you want to chime in, you're certainly welcome to. Yeah, I'm curious actually to hear everybody's views on this. And, and Jeff, I, I would also love to hear your, your thoughts on this too. I mean, I understand the concept of thinking about herd immunity as harm reduction, meaning that if we can get a certain percentage of the population, let's say 60 to 80% um, can get COVID-19 and can recover from it, then it also protects everybody else, especially the most vulnerable who would suffer the most consequences. So I understand the concept of it, but there is a big problem with herd immunity as far as I see, which is that we don't know if there is immunity. We don't know having gotten COVID-19 you are protected from it and you're not going to get it again. And without knowing about immunity as a concept, then we can't embark on this herd immunity experiment because a lot of people could get sick for nothing. You add on top of that, that this is a disease that has, let's say a mortality rate of 1%. That's a lot of people who are going to die in order for us to attempt herd immunity. And also that it's not just, of course, it's a problem if older people die too, but it's not just older people who are affected. It's also young people who could get severely ill and die. And this is a disease that disproportionately affects minorities um, and, and those who are the most vulnerable. So any herd immunity experiment um, is really going to uh, um, target those who are disproportionately affected already. So I, I understand the concept of it, but could not endorse it as a harm reduction approach for all those reasons. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think you want to say something, Maya? Oh, I just wanted to say, it seems like medical authorities are making the assumption that similar to SARS, there is immunity for at least a year or so. Um, I don't know if that assumption is reasonable or not, but that's what people seem to be um, sort of saying about that. And I mean, it would obviously be horrific if it lasts a few months 
or there's no lasting immunity at all. I don't know what we would do as a society if that were true. Unfortunately, I think that's very rare. Um, I'd actually love to hear what you have to say um, on that, Leanna, on that question. Uh, we just Oops. lost Lena. It looks like. Oh, yeah. Did we just? We just lost Lena. Uh, she'll be back. <laughs> I hope. Okay. Uh, her, <laughs> yeah. her. We just lost her connection apparently. Uh, but I'd like to, to um, say something to that. Uh, anyway, so um, I. Oh, Lena, you're back. Thank you. I don't know what happened there. We lost your your picture. Are you? You're with us though. Great, great. Did you hear what Maya said? Because she, she wanted to get your thoughts on uh, something. Did you hear it? Um, you might have to say the end of it, Maya. I'm so sorry. This is yeah. the perils of oh, working sure. from no, home. No. Gotcha. Yes. The um, I was just curious about the probability that there is no immunity or only very short immunity to COVID-19, because it seems like with SARS, yes. the immunity last few years and, and that it's very rare. I think the common cold is one of the few examples where there's immunity is very short lived. So I'm just curious, like statistically, what are the odds that this one would be that bad that we would just repeatedly get it? Yeah, I mean, this is the concern. Um, we don't, we just don't know. And I've heard Epulates because we don't know. I mean, this is a coronavirus. There are other coronaviruses, but these other coronaviruses all behave differently. MERS and SARS, for example, were much more fatal than obviously the common cold. Um, but this is just and not as transmissible. Um, but this is highly contagious. I mean, there are so many variables here. And I think it just it, try banking on this when we have no idea and are just making an assumption based on no evidence would would seem really difficult and actually this brings up the point also for vaccines that we want to be optimistic and i am an optimist by nature I, I hope it is true that we can develop a vaccine that will confer long-term immunity but we also need to be prepared for the fact that this we may be able to get a vaccine that's like the flu vaccine that's 40 to 60 percent effective and we have to keep on getting it every year I mean, that is also possible too. And I, I think we all need to be prepared um, for in, for living with COVID-19 in some form or other for years to come. Okay, so here's my two cents on this. Um, I First of all, I think maybe we should rephrase it because we obviously do develop immunity or we'd all be dead. Um, the fact that we develop antibodies and we survive the, the uh, viral illness means that our immune system responded. The, the question really should be, how long does that immunity last? And of course, we don't know. There is evidence uh, to believe based upon our experience with, with SARS-CoV-1 that it might be a couple of years, but we don't know. But uh, reframing the, the question about is, harm is herd immunity harm reduction, I would think that if we develop an effective, effective vaccine that, that confers uh, enough immunity on a population that it makes everyone safe, then, then then you could say, in that case, vaccinating people is a form of harm reduction. Um, it may turn out that it needs to be repeated periodically, just like our tetanus vaccination needs to repeated, be repeated every 10 years, or in the case of the flu vaccine, every every year. But if, if we were to develop a vaccine, a vaccine that is effective, then using a vaccine is a form of harm reduction and telling people that if you want to go out into into society with the risk of contracting COVID-19, we strongly recommend you get vaccinated against it. That would be, that would be my answer to that question. Any, is anybody okay with that? Yeah, uh, go ahead. 
Lena? No, I think I'm. Okay. So we're all okay. <laughs> okay. I have uh, another question here. This is from Richard Menger. Uh, the enabling concept plays into sanctimony. People voicing moralistic language about I'm doing more staying home. Why aren't you? What's what's the view of harm reduction in this argument? Are people going out doing less harm to the economy, but more harm to public health? Does it have to be dichotomous? That's the question. Uh, who wants to take that one first? I don't, I don't think it's dichotomous. I mean, to me, um, you're not going to get the kind of demand for things like restaurants and shopping and all the kinds of other stuff that we can't do now. You're not going to get the demand for that unless people feel safe enough to go out and do it. So I think that it's actually pretty aligned to get us finding ways of living safely with this thing um, in order to get the economy back. Um, I also think that the sort of sanctimony thing is important because one of the things we know about addiction and about behaviors related to pleasure is that other human beings like to shame us for them and like to stigmatize and want to say, you know, scream at people who aren't wearing masks or stuff like that. And, and I have that impulse myself, I have to say. But I know as somebody who's versed in harm reduction that shaming actually often backfires. And what tends to happen is if you use shame to try to motivate people, people will just hide the behavior that they are doing. I mean, with masks, it's a little different, but usually what will happen is that people will hide the negative behavior or become defiant about it. And if you wanna get people to change their behavior, the best way to do it is with compassion and respect and empathy and understanding why people are engaging it. Very good. Lena, you want yeah, to say something? I mean, um, sure. If I, I mean, I certainly agree with, with Maya on, uh, in a lot of ways, I mean, about how public health is the roadmap to recovery, that it's not dichotomous, right? There seems to be this false choice between the economy or public health when actually safety and ensuring people are safe is how we can get the economy back on track too. Um, and, um, and I think that's where the reducing risk concept is so important. If people now have to go back to work, how can we try to reduce that risk for them as much as possible? And I think that, it, again, is just important for all of us to take collective responsibility as individuals, as workers, as family members, etc. That said, um, I do want to not push back on Maya, but just you know address the point about the whole um, sanctimony, um, if you will, the comment about sanctimony. Um, you know, we have to recognize that there is collective risk in our society that it, the for so for, for example, let's take the issue of public transportation. If fewer people take public transportation, that actually makes it safer for those who do take it. If everybody is crowded on, then you have a lot of people and therefore that that increases the risk. So I would say those who have the op the option of not taking public transportation should not do so. Those of us who can walk, bike, drive should do that. And that way it helps with those who are on public tra transportation. I use this to illustrate a concept because social distancing and the ability to do things like not going on public transportation, that's a privilege. That's a privilege that not everyone has. And so I would say for those of us who don't have to take unnecessary risk right now, I do actually think it's selfish for people to 
get together in large groups and have large indoor, for example, dinner parties. Or when there are kids who cannot go to school and their school lunch is their only meal and the, um, kids who are from um, lower from backgrounds of lower socioeconomic status where they already face many barriers to education they're going to that what that disparity in education is going to be widened well it's selfish for other people to be having play dates in large groups while kids are unable to go to school and they have made these sacrifices. So I do think it's important for us to think about collective risk as a society that way. I'm not saying that we should be stigmatizing the individual for their choice, but I do think there's a role for pointing out that social distancing is a privilege and that those who, uh, that many people have already made enormous sacrifices during this pandemic. And there is a way for us to honor their sacrifice. And it cannot be by us flaunting um, the privilege that we have and going back to where things were. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. And I think that the way that um, it's, it's sort of the matter of the way we emphasize our collective responsibility. If we do it by shaming people who are selfish, that may not be as effective as saying you are good for doing, you know what I mean? It's, it's just, obviously the collective behavior is really critical in this. And, and it is sort of natural, I think, for people to get angry at people who are putting other people at risk and behaving selfishly. It's just the question of what's the most effective way to motivate them to behave in a more pro-social manner. And that may also differ depending on the person. I, I think, uh, you know, there's a lot of, evidence, a lot of reason to believe that if our public health officials give us, give the public really good, useful and updated, constantly updated information on how best to reduce the harm, I don't, there are very few people who number one, would like to get sick. And number two, who would like to think that they made someone else get sick. So uh, I think we could accomplish a lot by informing people and through, through just, you know, voluntary suasion as opposed to uh, trying to shame people. In, in fact, it, like, like you said, Maya, sometimes if you shame people, you get a reaction in the other direction and, and more harm. Um, I, um, I uh, it, haven't, oh, go, ahead. go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say, I think that um, if people are um, reacting to you know, the, that situation, it's better to try to motivate them in, in a different way. Yeah. Mark Bigler from Facebook asks uh, an interesting question. How about touch and the elderly? Don't older people need contact too? Yet one of our strategies has been to close senior facilities to essential workers only. Aren't family members essential? That's an interesting question. Uh, who wants to take this one first? Uh, Maya, you want to take that one? Are family sure. I mean, members I essential. Yeah, I think... I think the question of, you know, touch is actually healing often. And this virus exploits the fact that humans are tremendously socially interdependent. And it's a really, really difficult question. And I think people are gonna have to figure out the way within their own values to work with that. Because some people will be like, I'd rather die than not have touch. Um, and other people will be like, I want to live as long as possible, stay away family members. So I think it's it's a matter of sort of mutual consideration. 
um, because we really just don't know like what the relative risks are there. Um, Lena, you got anything you want to say about that or? Um, I mean, I, I agree. And I would just, you know, wanted to relay, um, something that, you know, my emergency medicine colleagues and I have, um, experienced, which is that I think for the first time we have had so many instances of holding up a phone to someone who the last time that their members can say goodbye is via Skype at best or phone to someone who may not be conscious. And, you know, that I just, I, I don't think that's a quote unquote new normal that any of us can or should ever get used to. Um, and I, I mean, I fully recognize the public health reasons for why this is occurring, but um, that really breaks my, my heart. And so I think we just at, are at a time when our humanity is being challenged in a really different way. Along along the lines of uh, while we're speaking about the elderly, Holly Strom asks, we knew very early on that elderly people in congregant living settings are at the highest risk. Do you believe that if we had gotten proper PPE and other measures to the s skilled nursing facilities and uh, adult living facilities very early on, we could have reduced deaths in this setting? Uh, Lena, why don't you answer that one? Yes. I mean, there, yes. <laughs> um, we, and I would argue we're still not there, right? We still know that nursing homes, other settings where people are um, in close living quarters, for example, jails um, or close working conditions like meatpacking plants, that these are um, the situations where and they're likely 100 where it's not just the individual that's affected, it's also the staff who are then going back family members for the community. And so I think there are many reasons for us to be um, um, to be specifically targeting our outreach and treatment um, to those most vulnerable communities. Yeah, um, here's one that uh, I'd like to ask of Maya. This is from Anonymous. Uh, how do you reconcile the idea that enabling should be not be considered a factor in determining risk reduction with regard to an addiction. I, I think the person meant harm reduction with the standard trope that alcoholics often refuse to acknowledge that they even have a problem until they hit bottom. Okay, so that is a great question. Uh, there actually is no such thing as bottom. We are currently experiencing this politically, but the reality of bottom is that it's only defined retrospectively. So if I get sober and I'm sober for a while and then I relapse, now I have a new bottom and then I relapse again and I have a new bottom. It's a narrative concept. It's not a scientific concept. So the thing is denial, which is supposedly seen in addiction, is really no different than the denial that all of us have as a normal human coping mechanism. So if I'm addicted and I believe that heroin is the only thing that makes me feel safe and comfortable, I'm going to deny that I have a problem because I don't want to give it up. If somebody tells me, hey, I think you have depression. I think that what's going on with you is that you're self-medicating the depression and we can find a way to make you happy and comfortable in your own skin without having to risk going to prison all the time. Um, I might take that option. The denial comes up in relationships. 
So when you interview people with addiction, they will readily tell you how much they're using and readily tell you all of what's going on in ways that they would never say to their counselor or to a cop or to a relative. So what you have to do is meet the person where they are, figure out what they want in life and help them realize that healthier behaviors are likely to get them there and that healthier behaviors are gonna be bearable. What people are afraid of is you're gonna take away their coping mechanisms. Most people with addiction have trauma and or mental illness. And all that stuff's gonna come rushing back when the drugs are gone. And that's terrifying because they've, they've relied on this for so long. So in order to actually help people get better from addiction, you need to enable them to feel better about themselves and more comfortable. And the way harm reduction works and what's so beautiful about it is that, for example, when you give somebody a clean needle, I've been out with needle exchangers and it's always a very moving experience because people who are homeless and who are seeking needles from needle exchanges are often just the most marginalized people. Everybody crosses the street to avoid them. Their families avoid them. They've been rejected by everybody. And here's somebody who says, I care if you live. I care if you take care of yourself. I don't want you to get infected with this disease. That is a very powerful message. And if they realize, hey, I am doing this good, healthy behavior that is better than risking HIV by using a dirty needle, um, then they start to get a sense of agency again and a sense of, well, maybe I could make a bigger change. And that's how harm reduction works to move people. You know, the saying is meet people where they're at, but don't leave them there help them to move along in ways that will enable them to reach their own goals. The problem with a lot of the way we treat addiction is that we think that people should meet our goals and we think that abstinence is like the best thing in the world. For a lot of people, that's not a goal, but their goal might be, I wanna be there for my baby. Okay, abstinence may be the only way you can get there to be able to achieve that, um, but it's a different way of looking at it because if you help people, to do the things they want to do, they'll be much more willing to make difficult changes than if you just tell them, well, you have to do this thing that um, that I think is wonderful, but you think is going to like kill you emotionally and make your life not worth living. So the idea of bottom is just been falsified over and over again. If you just also think about it for a minute, who's more likely to recover? A doctor who's got everything or a homeless person? I'm going to bet my money on the doctor because they have the resources. If you have hit bottom, you've taken away all the resources and people with resources are actually more likely to get better. So it's just falsified in every possible way, but it's sort of a cultural myth that persists. And we keep thinking we're going to find bottom. It's, there's going to be a bottom. And for some people, the bottom is death. Um, you know, and I just hope our society finds one narratively soon. That's a very, that's great. I appreciate that. I have a, this one I'm going to direct more. This is more in Lena's wheelhouse. We're going to swing back now to harm reduction and pandemics. So Anonymous asks, social distance lockdown have led to harm to the economy, in turn affecting all aspects of life and health. Wouldn't a better overall societal harm reduction approach have been to protect the vulnerable, for example, nursing home patients, while letting low-risk people live their lives and reducing their harm. What do you think about that, Lena? Yeah, so a few things about this. Um, one is that it is not only 
older individuals who are ill. And I think we can debate also the ethics of uh, people another time, but um, it's not only older people uh, who have chronic conditions who are ill. And this is a disease that also doesn't just affect the respiratory system. It seems to affect numerous other body systems too. Um, it, there are young people previously healthy in their 30s and 40s whose first presenting symptom is stroke. And now they're debilitated for life um, and unable to work because of this illness. There are children who have this kind of post-infectious viral syndrome that we're seeing and still not fully understanding. That's like a toxic shock syndrome that causes multi-organ failure and even death. So that's one problem. Another problem is that when you overwhelm the healthcare system, if so many patients become ill because of 20% of people with COVID-19 um, end up going to seek um, to seek hospital care in some way, when you overwhelm the healthcare system, you're affecting everyone. You're affecting not only those who are coming in with COVID-19, those who are who are coming in for heart attacks and strokes may be scared to get care in the first place, or they may be coming in and not able to get the the care that they need. Um, and that may that also then causes harm to a larger portion of, of society. And then I think there's the issue also that Maya mentioned, which is you, you can't just because someone is saying it's fine for everyone to go back to their normal lives doesn't mean that everyone wants to take that risk. And actually, for a lot of people, feeling safe to go about their daily activities actually requires that um, that the virus is under control. And so I again, I appreciate where this question is coming from, but I think the other way of looking at it is if we are able to reduce the level of this virus to a level that we can contain, and then we have the public health infrastructure and the mechanism to actually contain the virus, that is the roadmap for getting the economy up and running again, rather than just ignoring it and letting the virus go haywire um, around our country. Well, I think one of the real shameful things about this situation is that we have wasted the time during this complete shutdown and not built up the healthcare system and not done the testing and not done the kind of things that we need to do in order to open up and not overwhelm the system. So we kind of wasted all this time when we're all inside and feeling miserable and didn't do the things that needed to be done. Now, I think that it's starting to be the case that we're having enough testing and it's starting to be the case that there's enough uh, sort of room in the healthcare system for more people to be sick. But I think that it's a tragedy that we didn't use the time that we had better than we did. We just have a, a few minutes left, but I, I want to throw something out. Uh, Maya, early in the, in the beginning of this, you mentioned what, what, what you have earlier pointed out is called abstinence violation effect, which is uh, when people are asked to abstain and, and then uh, then they they don't, sometimes they go overboard and they, uh, they binge. Uh, now, you also mentioned, and I think we could all agree that being cooped up inside for a lengthy period of time drives people, gets people very anxious and, and uh, very irritable and, uh, and could make us uh, get very easily angry. Now, of course, this is speculation, but I'm wondering, you know, we're all aware of the protests, justifiable protests going on around the country now for the last nine days, but some of them had become uh, violent and there's been a lot of destruction. I wonder if there's a role that, uh, because in many cases, people are outside in large groups, which they have really been not able to do for three months. And uh, I wonder if there's a role uh, of abstinence violation effect that may be a factor in some of the destruction and violence that some people 
are exhibiting. Anybody have any thoughts on that? I mean, I do think that people were desperate to run out, but obviously there was a justifiable and important and critical reason for these demonstrations to happen. Um, so I think, you know, everybody really has been, you know, sort of, and, and particularly people of color, just like overwhelmed by the situation and just knowing that the only thing they can do to make themselves heard is to go out in the street now. Lena, any thoughts about that? I mean, I, I think a lot of I, I don't think that that's why people are, are are protesting. I think that the reasons why people are protesting are much deeper and have to do again with this concept that people's lives are just not valued equally. And now, you know, we're seeing this out so blatantly through George Floyd's death and also through the what's happened with COVID-19. Um, I do, though, think that there is just this misunderstanding about what reopening means. And that miscommunication um, even has to do with the term reopening, because that implies you open, you shut. It's dichotomous, as opposed to really nothing about the virus has changed. And we are reopening slowly in order to get our economy back on track. And we should still keep be on guard to uh, protect our health. So I think that that's the communication that all of us as public health experts have to have to keep on um, um, and and make sure that people understand. And another, I was another basically point referring. I, I was oh, just sorry. basically just referring to, to the destruct, destructive behavior. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 don't, I, don't, yeah. I actually think that first of all, the vast majority of the protests have been peaceful and not right. destructive. But I do think that the destruction that we've seen has unfortunately just been organized people who realize that the cops are paying more attention to the demonstrators and they can go loot somewhere. Uh, yeah, it could, could very well be. I was just throwing that out for something to consider. Um, I got time, I think, for one more question. So uh, this seems like an appropriate one from Lester Hunt. Shouldn't harm reduction really be called risk reduction? Harm assessments are retrospective. We know after we have used the policy whether we reduced harm. Risk is prospective. When we choose a policy, we don't know actual harm, only how the policy affects risk as we can currently assess it. Shouldn't we be, I think that well, it depends on on the goal of your policy. So if your goal is to, say, reduce drug use and you're not paying attention to what the measures that you are taking to try to reduce drug use consist of and the harm that's associated with them, I think the beauty of harm reduction is recognizing that policies do harm and that when you're going to set a policy, you need to determine whether what you're doing is going to be more harmful than what you're trying to stop. And so while, yes, it's certainly retrospective to see whether harm happened or not, there are certainly predictable harms uh, and predictable risks that you can address. Also, this became called harm reduction because that's the way the movement named it. Um, so you can sort of argue about the terminology, but it's kind of already there. Well, it looks like uh, our time's just about up, and we have lots more questions. I'm sorry we can't answer them all. But I, first of all, I'd really like to thank uh, Maya and Lena for participating in this really important discussion. And I'd like to thank all of our attendees for watching us online. Um, this uh, is being recorded and should be available sometime later today for those 
who would like to review it or share it, or those who missed it, you could tell your friends that it'll be available to view online. So with that, uh, let me uh, thank everyone and uh, look forward to look look for more events at the Cato website, cato.org, and look for more uh, public policy research that we do in this and other areas at the Cato website. Thank you.